Wouldn't worry, though. Trouble's not new to Betty. Yeah, that's one popular school of thought. Incidentally, you seem to be going a long ways out of your way on this run-of-the-mill murder story, Remini. You're taking a long way around the
Hello, and welcome to the Weekly Review. This is Roman, back after a brief hiatus. Um, yeah, getting into the swing of things here back at the station. You're listening to Mutiny Radio here in San Francisco, California. It'll take me a while just to get back into it. While I was away, I did manage to listen to some other podcasts, and it's always really good just to hear what else is happening and comparatively, I'm thinking maybe this podcast should be a little bit more lighthearted. Maybe it should be a little bit funnier. And it's difficult when it is a news program and we're talking about the the world that we're living in, which is really difficult for a lot of us. So that's one goal I think we'll have is to talk about what's happening um, in a way that can hopefully uplift people as well as bring in the information. Try to find a balance. I think that's always important. We'll be playing a lot of music today. We're having, we're having a guest come in a little bit later today. Looking forward to that conversation as well. So start off the show with some instrumental tracks. And as I mentioned, uh, yeah, I was out of town. Just got in late last night. So I'm still recovering a little bit from travel. And uh, it's going to definitely show. Uh, so I'm happy just to be more calm today, take it easy, not rush so much. Oftentimes when I've done this show, there's the need to get to everything, which is impossible because we can't really get to everything because there's always things happening constantly. And as has been the case for a long time, when events are occurring and it's difficult to find accurate information, there's so much to get to. And there's also the emotional toll when one goes over what's happening, how does one respond to it? I'm, I'm a fairly empathic person, so it's difficult not to get overwhelmed or to get emotional. I don't think there's anything wrong with being emotional or being sensitive or feeling affected by the world. Perhaps if more people were, we might find a different way of being. There is a way, though, perhaps to recognize what's happening and ex- accept it. I mean, it's difficult to accept that it's happening and to find ways just to to move forward and to create new ways of being so we don't have to continue to live with the behaviors and the systems that are in place that are oftentimes difficult to not internalize and repeat. There's this idea that we have a lot of options out there uh, for ways to, to be, and ideally, yeah, that's true, yet when we look at ways to support ourselves or industries to partake in, how do we support ourselves? That's, that seems to be limiting as well as, you know, how do we show emotions? How do we work together? I think those, those are endless yet. The examples we're given are kind of few and far between. My goal is to make this a happy show and, (laughs) uh, well, we'll work on that. I do have some news. I, I took a bit of a news break. I couldn't help it, but still hear about what was happening and pay attention, but definitely was offline a bit for a couple of weeks. And that was very, very beneficial. So I recommend that for folks who normally are constantly checking what's happening in the world. And I do think it's important to be informed. And it's also important to take some mental health breaks from the news because it can feel overwhelming, especially with a fascistic government. And even, you know, years ago, it's not like things were suddenly, suddenly got terrible. There have been things in the works for a long time that were really problematic and 
harmful to humans. So grateful that <sighs> um, we can take breaks uh, at least to, to not have to have a screen in front of us at all times. It can be really helpful. So I recommend that for folks who don't normally do that. It helped me out a lot. And there's, I mean, the saying is uh, ignorance is bliss. So I don't really necessarily think being ignorant is the, is the solution. I do think taking some time away can be very helpful. And so it's good to recharge and to have the energy to then come back with. So that being said, um, uh, it's the anniversary of quite a few things today. And we'll be possibly getting to that. But I am feeling very just mellow. So I'm going to continue playing music. I hope you enjoy it. And we'll be back in just a little bit.
children dying on the battlefield of America, a dream deferred. I had a dream, a dream of a tree bearing fruit in the promised land, a fruit that would be shared by all God's children. I know now that that fruit is a decayed fruit that has fallen to the ground because so many of our young children that must eat of that fruit are dying faster than they are being born. The problem is, this is the same tree that has lynched so many of our African brothers and sisters not too long ago. I'm not talking about the tree of life. I'm talking about a tree deeply rooted in the American dream. A tree that has witnessed 250 years of slavery, 100 years of legally enforced segregation, and decades of racial discrimination and prejudice in every facet of life. that must be cut down by every black man, white man, Jew, and Gentile, Protestant, and Catholic. And I will add to Dr. Martin Luther King's speech, Shinto and Muslim. We, not, we cannot expect our young children to rise up from the stranglehold of poverty until this tree has fallen to the ground. And on that day, we as a people will be able to join hands and sing in new meaning the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. And welcome back to the weekly review. I'm joined here by Linnell Gardner. Linnell, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Yes, and that was a piece from Stories I Never Told My Father. Yes. Riveting. Yeah, hearing it on the radio, it's pretty, wow, it's pretty, it makes me kind of sad to, to hear that again. I hadn't heard yeah. it for a while. Yeah. Uh, I wrote that piece because I felt that children were crying out and no one was listening. So I wanted to write a, a play, an American play, mm -hmm. about the struggles of the youth uh, because what I felt was, they always do exposés whenever they do family uh, family family expose. They always talk to the parents, but they never talk to the children. Yeah. And I felt that you know children are aware even at five years old. I start to play out at five years old, and yeah. I work my way up till present day. And the audience basically watch watches me grow up in the play. And I wanted to show that uh, these kids have a voice and they have something to say. And I felt that if I could start to play at five years old, uh, portraying myself at five years old, I think the audience would understand that 
their whatever they do in life has an effect on those kids, even if they don't understand, even if a child doesn't understand intellectually uh, what's going on, he's feeling and experiencing uh, his surroundings. Yeah. And later on, hopefully, he he a child is able to articulate those feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's very important that children and young folks have a voice and be yes. heard. And I feel like a lot of things in our culture, one thing is that children aren't allowed to voice their opinions. And then it kind of takes, it, we all kind of take it with us to adulthood. Yes, that's that's correct. And uh, another thing that inspired me about this uh, work was that I read a uh, Newsweek uh, uh, article. It said, what is the condition of... Uh, white America and what is the condition of black America mm-hmm. and I wrote the edit- editor and I said isn't isn't there just one America yes isn't Amer- uh, the condition of black quote-unquote black America the condition of America mm-hmm. as a whole and the con- condition of white America <coughs> excuse me <coughs> also the condition of America isn't there just one America isn't uh, a problem in black America a problem in America as a whole yeah and and that was something that I really wanted to emphasize in this play was you know my story is the American story yeah. uh, 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 inner city story is the American story an inner, inner city condition uh, the, uh, is an American condition and that's one one thing I wanted to mostly emphasize uh, with this with this play and most importantly was I, 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 I love history so uh, I look back through history when I was researching this this work and I found that you know there we have a lot in common uh, uh, Jewish Jewish uh, community Chinese community Italian community uh, white community uh, Filipino community Asian community what we have in common is Poverty affects every community yes. in, in America, and no matter what, how far I look back at throughout history of America, poverty was always always an issue. Mm-hmm. And through through poverty, people did whatever they could to survive. Yes, yeah. So uh, one thing I wanted to to reflect on in writing this play and performing this play was the fact that we can't judge how we survive yeah. uh, through poverty. And sometimes that means doing some things that are unethical. Yes. You know, sometimes you have you have a, a Jewish mafia or you have a, a Italian mafia or a Chinese mafia or a black mafia or, or a, a white mafia. And uh, sometimes just to put food on your table, you might have to do things that aren't considered ethical. Yes. So your child can live even one more day. Yes. You yeah. know. Uh, I was in a cafe and I was telling this uh, story to a, a woman and she said, you know, I would never do anything unethical. I said, wait, OK, let's mm. let's create a scenario. Yeah. You have four children. They're starving. Yeah. Uh, you have no money and there's some bread there at the supermarket. Yeah. And, you know, if your kids do not eat something today. They will die. Yeah. So you're telling me, I said to the, I said to her, so you're telling me that you wouldn't steal that loaf of bread so your kids could live? She said, no. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Mm. And I said, she's not, I, I felt that she wasn't being very honest yeah. about, about the, uh, this scenario or she never, she had never gotten to a place where she was that hungry. Yes. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. uh, 
so uh, when it comes to the play, I toured it through the UK. Mm-hmm. I did five. I was it was sponsored by British Airways. I did uh, uh, the, uh, the Institute of Contemporary Art of London uh, sponsored the, the play. I did five cities, uh, and you know what? I've done it more in uh, the UK than I have in the United States. Huh, interesting. And so <laughs> my dream is to uh, do a national tour, especially now with a lot of the police. Sh- uh, shootings and a lot of the act uh things that are happening in the inner city it's kind of perfect for today's uh climate yes uh and what i try to do is i like i like i work with police and fbi and and i try to get them to understand that you're not just we're not just numbers uh we're not just uh we have we have a history you know i lived in la for five years and i've never seen a white man face down on the on the pavement Mm mm-hmm uh, when I was there, I saw Latinos and black people face down or sitting down mm-hmm. on the pavement. I said, you know, and even out here, I, I asked police, I said, listen, why don't you just put the the perk into the, the police patrol car? Why why take his dignity along with taking him to jail? Yeah. You, you, and um, and so I, 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 try, I try to fight for that. You know, I try to fight for, you know, this is why there's there's this animosity with police. It's because of you take us, you don't, you take us to jail, but you take our dignity away also. And that goes back to slavery, goes back to uh, discrimination, goes back to segregation times. Uh, And we tend to, the youth tend to uh, reflect on that when they're being mistreated. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is just like Jim Crow, or this is just like Mm -hmm. slave times, you know? And, um, it's it's and and that's I try to bring that understanding to the police when I when I work with them or conf- or create work workshops uh, sensitivity training uh, post I do post uh, police organization sensitivity training with with police uh, based on racial profiling mm-hmm. and try to get them to understand uh, uh, you know again we're not just we're not just people that they can just uh, pick up and take to jail we they have an opportunity to to please have an opportunity to plant seeds you know uh because they deal with uh, a family member that that goes to jail they take they take the person to jail they take the person from jail they 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 have a relationship mm-hmm. that they can uh, basically a, a police officer can create a a relationship with that with that with that uh person uh and that family uh, and can create a positive influence rather than just seeing him as a criminal or seeing that person as someone that he's arresting and yeah. taking back and forth, seeing him, him as an in, in, a human being. Yeah. You know, well, I think oftentimes the police end up working in neighborhoods that they don't live in. So yeah, there's this kind of sense is, of othering a lot of the time. Yeah. That's, that is, they even admit to that, that that's a problem because of the fact that they transfer a lot and they don't know the history of the community. Yeah. Yeah. So, and even just the, I guess the job of policing ends up with their goal is to sometimes either fill a quota or to arrest people so yeah it's the the job in itself yeah it can become like a business yeah you know so you know it's funny because i talk to a lot of the retired police officers and they're pretty much pretty honest yeah because you know they don't have to they don't have anything to lose yeah they have nothing to lose and what they tell me is uh that um there is racial profiling they have to they have to racial profile so (laughs) i mean yeah, yeah none of this is a surprise it's just so 
disheartening. Yeah, so I think it's important that community uh, involvement is always uh, uh, must be always be a part of, of policing, mm-hmm. so they can get a, a sense of 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 what the community uh, is feeling and articulating and and what's the needs of the community. Yeah. Uh, uh, so. Or even perhaps we can create a world where there is no need for police and yeah. communities can look out for each other. Yeah, that's correct. That would be great if we, the policemen can retire early. Yeah, <laughs> that can be a goal. Yeah, that'd be a great goal. Okay, yeah. Early retirement. Let us help you. Yeah. Let fine. the community help you retire early. Let's plant some seeds this way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, So anyway, yeah, so that's been my goal is to to get the play back up and, and to tour it. I mean, I put I, the whole play is actually on YouTube. Oh, yes, uh, yes. So you can see the whole play, Stories I Never Told My Father, on YouTube. Or you could get the book. Uh, it basically is the play, but it, so you can get that on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, and um, the book, uh, it was just incredible. So if you're interested in talking about that. Oh, the, the, well. oh so so yeah. uh, you're talking about Sonny Liston? Yes, yeah. Yeah, so my grandfather was Sonny Liston. Uh, he was the heavyweight champion of the world. Um, and, uh, you know, he held me when I was a baby. When I, when I was a small baby, he held me. And uh, unfortunately, my dad was, uh, he was a, uh, he wasn't in my life. So a lot of my uncles and aunts, they spent most of their time around Sonny. Uh, Sonny had homes in Philadelphia. Uh, he had a home in uh, Denver. Uh, he had a home in uh, Vegas, and he had a home in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And my aunts and uncles they they lived with them uh, when he they were younger. And so a lot of my uh, knowledge of Sonny was from my uh, aunts and uncles and my father, mm-hmm. and also um, my grandmother, yes. uh, Geraldine Liston, which is his wife. And so um, I, when I was writing the book, I mean, there's been a lot of people, there's been a lot of films about Sonny, there's been a lot of books about Sonny, but my grandmother always said, she always stated that uh, no one knew Sonny like I knew Sonny. Yes. I was always by his side. Yeah. All they want to talk about are their lies. And I did about, well, when she told me that, it surprised me. I, I was, uh, what surprised me was her love for Sonny. In spite of all the negative things people say, yeah. about, have said about him, she, he was considered the champion that nobody wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he uh, beat Floyd Patterson uh, for the heavyweight championship of the world, there was not one person that came to see him in Philadelphia to greet him. Which oh, yes, was, yes, that was mentioned in the Yeah, book. which yeah. was really unusual. And a lot of that had to do with negative press, and he was blacklisted by uh, uh, some of the Philadelphia uh, uh, editors, uh, uh, Anna Burke family. Um, also uh, was uh, one that did not like him, thought he was a criminal, a murderer, uh, all these things. Mm-hmm. And so what what really surprised me was uh, my grandmother's love for him in spite of that negative, negative things. And I thought to myself, why am I so surprised that she could love a man that was considered the champion that nobody wanted? And it, I really was able to take a look at my own self-loathing. I said, wait. I don't love myself. I, what, I, what I'm surprised at is how could she love a black man that much? You know what I'm saying? And not be affected by uh, the stereotypical, uh, not not be affected by what I was affected by was racism teaches you to be, to hate yourself. Mm-hmm. It teaches you to uh, 
have a kind of like a false consciousness of of your identity of who you are uh, i have a friend that was a poet and he says that uh, uh young black kids run their hands through their frizzy braids being more african than they know and so we have we have african uh, uh, uh in us the african uh is in us but we don't we can't identify with okay what tribe is this handshake from mm-hmm. Or what tribe is you know that that dance move from? We we can't really identify the the, the tribe, but it's unconscious in us. Mm-hmm. So what is not what's unconscious in us is is filled in by this uh, propaganda, this yeah. racist propaganda that came from slavery, propaganda uh, of the slave trade, and and uh, racist racist propaganda that allowed us to be segregated from other communities. So those things filled my mind as a young child, and and made me uh, basically believe that I was less than human or less than or a beast. And this is how some of the uh, sports writers depicted Sonny as a beast, as a murderer, dangerous. And these are the things that I was also uh, uh, grown up to believe or uh, my, my teachers would believe or even my uh, coaches would believe that I was a dangerous inner city kid. And so it's almost like being born with an identity that you, it's like being born into a world already defined mm-hmm. by society. Mm-hmm. And so so when I was writing the book about Sonny, I was relating, even though I didn't have the experience, the only experience I had with Sonny was when he held me as a baby, which I, of course I don't remember. Uh, I wanted to, I found a way to relate to him as a black man, uh, as, a, as, a, as a fighter. I'm also a martial artist. Uh, so I was able to relate to him as a black man, as a fighter, uh, as a, a man dealing with racism, mm-hmm. uh, as a man that uh, fought to love himself, he he was kind of a catalyst for me to face my shadow self. Yes, and and, and to know I had a shadow self, and so the book is basically called Beast: The Deconstruction of Sonny Charles Liston. Oh, excuse me, the Beast: The Deconstruction of Charles Sonny Liston, which is also on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's basically my deconstruction, mm-hmm. deconstruction of the the myth that I created around myself, the myth of race. Mm-hmm. And what I found after 12 years of, of, uh, of uh, research uh, was that the people, the, my grandmother was right. There's no one that knew Sonny like she knew Sonny. Mm-hmm. There, there are people that, and, and also what I found was that the, the myth of Sonny Liston is the myth of race, mm-hmm. right? People that wrote, most people that wrote about Sonny they were also influenced by racist, the racist propaganda mm-hmm. that influenced their writing, influenced what what they didn't know about Sonny. They filled with uh, racist propaganda, uh, uh, the myths of slavery, the myths of of black people, uh, the the beast uh, that have you know that had to be chained. Mm-hmm. So so I related a lot to. Uh, Sonny Liston in that way and it helped me to 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 write the book basically and relate to Sonny and 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 through the through the the book uh, the writing of the book I was able to to break through and find that love for myself yes and in finding my love for myself I was able to embrace Sonny mm-hmm. 
as a human being. Mm -hmm. And I feel that there's a lot of shame that not only myself, but I think as black black people, I think we have yet to face our shame, the shame of of how this country has treated us, the the pain that we, we went through. I don't think we've truly, even with the Civil Rights Act and with the educational strives, uh, uh, accomplishments we've had, we I don't think we faced our shadow self. I don't think we faced our shame. Even even so, I also think that even white people, the white community uh, has not faced their shame. Oh yeah. And yeah. that's why, uh, we I think if we don't do that as as a country, we'll never move forward. Right. Yeah. Cause it's I mean it's still happening. Yeah. So it's nothing's changing. Nothing's changing. So I think we haven't healed from the past. Yet. Yes. Yeah. Uh, as a as a country, we haven't healed from the past. So so in writing the book, I was able to really uh, delve into. I it, it's it's not like it's not like I I I mean I can be accused of yeah I'm, I'm doing this because. I'm a a family member, you know. Uh, I'm searching for the truth. I'm I, I'm biased because I'm a I'm a relative of Sonny Liston. But then I could then I say to that what I say to that is well, I didn't know him. So what I needed to do was get to know him to save myself. Yes. I had to, and I think that's a that's a problem with uh, I think also uh, the black community kind of abandoned Sonny Liston mm. uh, because he was seen as Negroid. Uh, no, he had a Negroid nose, uh, which is a racist term. Uh, he was considered, uh, he didn't know how to read, right? He was taught to read by my grandmother. But he wasn't, that didn't mean he wasn't smart, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, he um, basically uh, was the stereotypical uh, black man. And then came Ali. Who was in your face, uh, uh, reverent, uh, took didn't take any crap, uh, and people clung to that because after the uh, the church bombing where the the kids were killed, yeah. black people had a new attitude. They were they were they, they weren't going to stand for anything, mm -hmm. and so they kind of chose Ali as their hero mm -hmm. and abandoned Sonny mm -hmm. uh, because he represented that that uh, shame. Mm that we felt that they could point to Sonny and say, see, you guys ain't nothing but niggas. You know what I'm saying? So so I think we as a community have to embrace Sonny. And I think that's why we don't embrace, because then there was, then we, we the Civil Rights Act passed in 60, 64 and 65, and people felt that we could assimilate now. We could assimilate, we can become mainstream, and we can be loved, we can educate ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, but we left the inner city behind. We left, my dad was a pimp, right? My dad was a pimp. And, but the, that, that during the, before the Civil Rights Act, the pimp, they, they circulated the, the, the money in, in, in the community, mm -hmm. right? So, so the pimp went and went to Uncle, Uncle Joe's, who was a, it was a community mechanic, mm -hmm. and he gave Uncle Joe money for fixing his cars mm -hmm. and then uncle joe went to big mama's house to get barbecue because big mama cooked food for the community all yeah. day right and so all that money circulated through the through, through the community mm -hmm. but once we left once those that could leave leave the community left the community mm. uh to assimilate or uh how was it uh, in the 70s uh the, uh join them what was it called the melting pot mm -hmm. uh they they 
left those that could left and those that couldn't all we had were the pimps and the prostitutes mm -hmm. and the drug dealers uh we didn't have the balance that we had when we had the whole community there i see right we didn't have that that community support that realized our saying was we're just doing what we can just to get by yeah you know you know so so we understood that sometimes we had to do some things unethical to survive oh sure right but once we got part of the mainstream um we kind of wanted we, we created this false consciousness this false identity of assimilation which means you in order to assimilate you have to give up your identity mm. and become something else mm -hmm. so bec become the inner city had to as you assimilate you have to become more white like the ruling class mm -hmm. and so and so in order to to do to do that 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 middle class which is now the black bourgeois the black middle class they basically uh abandoned the inner city i mean i i have to say i was part of that that generation mm -hmm. uh that was uh groomed to assimilate become more white mm -hmm. uh and to forget uh, uh and because the white white people own everything uh they're gonna they're gonna be your boss you have to do what the white man says uh because uh they they own everything and that's how I was raised. Uh, and so, um, there, therefore, I had to give up my, that identity that was connected to the inner city myself. And now I'm kind of trying to come home and take, I'm trying to embrace that identity that I lost. And that's, that's kind of what the book is about. I'm embracing that part of Sonny that I hated myself, mm. right? That, uh, that shadow self. Yeah, it was really interesting with reading it, with mm. providing the historical context and mm. then Sonny's life and then your own life as well and weaving it all together. It was very compelling. Yeah, and, and mostly I wanted to show how myth, I mean, you can only destroy an idea with another idea. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to show how myth can be easily created. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Where, yeah. I mean, you speak about how it's up to certain people who tell the story. Exactly. And also, if you're gone, you don't have a chance to tell your own story. Right. Right. And then you know the the they say the uh, the those that win uh, just, they write the histories, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so it, it, and that goes back to my grandmother who spent most of her life after Sonny Sun, died in '71, and he spent most of his she spent the the rest of her life trying to kind of defend his name. He mm -hmm. said no, he. She loved him in spite of himself. She mm -hmm. loved, loved him altruistically. Mm -hmm. uh, she had unselfish love for him. Mm -hmm. And she loved him, uh, uh, his, the good and the bad. Yes. You know what I'm saying? And that's love, right? That's, that's true love. Yes. So that's what my grandmother taught me. She said, and that's what surprised me. I, I didn't know what true love was until my grandmother uh, told me that. Because I, I asked her, I said, why didn't you remarry yeah. after Sonny died? She said, he was the love of my life. Yeah. Right? And that's like, wow. In spite of what everybody thought about about Sonny. Um, because me, I spent a lot of time running from that nig that nigga self. You know, that, that the nigga that the white society despised. I ran from that self. And I, I'm going to be just like you. I'm going to be more white. I'm going to educate myself. And I'm going to... I'm gonna, uh, uh, you know, uh, be everything but what you, you disdain in us. And no matter how educated I got, or how successful I got, I would still be treated like a nigger. So then I finally said, wait a second. Uh, this is like, a, a, it's like running a race and never being able to 
being on a treadmill my whole life, trying to just going over and over and not being able to get off the treadmill. I said, you know what? I need to get off this treadmill and 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 live live my life according to my you know what I believe and 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 most most importantly, I have to start living uh, based on someone else's idea of how I should be and, yeah. and live according to how I think I should live, you know, or, or live or live according to somebody else's rules except my own. Um, and that again, that's a lot of what the book was about. It's about coming to terms with that, you know. Uh, again, going back to facing, uh, realizing that, my, that I had. Uh, this self-loathing uh, uh, part of myself. Yeah. Um, so going back to um, you know who's telling the the stories. Uh, a lot of people told Sonny's story, mm -hmm. right? See, a lot of people told Sonny's story, and Geraldine Liston never had the opportunity to tell to tell uh, Sonny's story, and that's what she spent her whole life doing, and. Uh, when she when she died, I felt like I had to kind of pick up the baton mm -hmm. and tell his story. I basically, set the record straight on how he died um, and uh, and how he lived. And there's been a lot of rumors that the fight was fixed between Ali mm -hmm. and and uh, Sonny. He had a, a fight with Sonny in '65, and a fight with uh, Sonny and Ali had a fight with Sonny in '65, and a fight with Sonny in '64. Now, the 64 fight, you know, Sonny was favored to win. And he, uh, they thought it was fixed because Sonny was known for having a powerful left jab. Mm -hmm. And during the fight, he wasn't really using it that well. But what people don't know is, uh, according to my grandmother, the dumbest thing Sonny ever did was to fight that first fight, knowing that he had injured his shoulder before the fight, uh. his left shoulder. And uh, what, what happened was he was... Uh, fixing the storm drain on mm -hmm. the roof and he fell off the ladder and landed on his left shoulder so the Nilon brothers who were his managers at the time mm -hmm. they uh they kind of convinced him to fight anyway and it's a big money fight so like one of the one of the one of the biggest big money fights at that time and uh <clears throat> so he went in knowing that his shoulder was hurt and barely uh, and then at, i think before the beginning of the seventh round or he he threw in the towel so that kind of made people suspicious like what's going on he he was favored to win and here was ali he was the people's champion he was like 22 years old how could this happen mm -hmm. uh young irreverent um uh, and so what they did was what people don't know the facts were always there the facts about what happened were always there, but people weren't willing to look. Yes. And I think that had a lot to do with race and how people felt about Italians, how people felt about uh, black people at that time. Uh, so they, what they don't know is that his purse was taken from him, mm -hmm. right? And uh, by the commission, boxing commissioner. And they, were, they said, okay, we're going to see if what you say about your shoulder is true. So they had... Uh, medical examiners examined Sonny, Sonny's shoulder to find out if he was able to fight, mm -hmm. continue to fight in that fight. And what I think they had like seven examiners. Then I think that the state attorney general was also involved with it. And they tested his shoulder and found that he could that during the fight he had torn his uh, his I, I forgot the name of the particular muscle, but uh, uh, 
he had torn the shoulder muscle mm -hmm. and he could not continue fighting after that and so that was proof and the fact that once they once they uh, acknowledged that that was the the reason that he could not that he he was right in saying that he can no longer uh, throw that jab mm -hmm. they gave him his purse back hmm. so if if it was fixed they wouldn't have given him his purse back yeah right yeah and then the second fight uh was uh the rematch with ali and uh ali actually knocked him out in less than a minute in something a little bit over a minute mm -hmm. and they say people never saw the punch it was called the, the phantom the punch, phantom punch. Yeah. <laughs> but it's funny it's it's funny it's a funny technicality because there's an opposite side of the uh there's an opposite camera angle mm -hmm. that howard cosell showed that showed the punch landing on sonny's temple mm -hmm. and you could actually hear the punch and the punch was like uh like a bomb going off in in the stadium yeah and <clears throat> what my question was why was this other angle uh not shown all to the all these years yeah uh and why was all, uh Howard Cosell's uh punch ignored mm -hmm. it's because the phantom punch was sensationalized mm -hmm. the media got control of it and after that happens it becomes it starts to become part of the world view yes and people ignored Howard Cosell's mm -hmm. uh uh uh, angle of, of the punch mm -hmm. and you can go on uh, YouTube today and find and see that punch land mm -hmm. um, and uh, but even with the other side the shot side where you could not see the punch land you see Sonny's head uh, jerk to the to the right mm -hmm. when the such the punch should have landed so I think we are a little bit at that time in history people were a little bit naive they didn't know that Ali was would one day be the greatest. Yeah, in yeah. The world. You yeah, see what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and and you can actually see him. See, Ali said he used the anchor punch. Mm -hmm. He used the anchor punch to defeat uh, Sonny. Sonny had a problem. He had a great jab. He revolutionized the jab. But when he threw it, he threw it with all his strength. So it basically popped when he extended it when you extend a jab you're supposed to bring it back on the same line and when Sonny would throw the jab he would throw it so fa so hard that it would hyper extend and 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 go below his chin mm -hmm. and uh what Ali did was he was able to throw an overhand right like nobody ever in the history of boxing he revolutionized the overhand right so basically what he did was he was able to uh, uh practice in a gym with a with a fighter who was fighting in a, a, a in a way that uh, uh, Sonny Liston would fight mm -hmm. his sparring partner, and that's where he came up with the anchor punch, mm -hmm. which he learned from Step and Fetch It, and and Step and Fetch It learned it from Jack Johnson. Mm -hmm. So what the anchor punch does is it creates uh, a momentum. Uh, it's not a it's, it's not a a boxing punch. It's a mm -hmm. it's a martial arts punch. Mm -hmm. And if you th you think of Bruce Lee. Uh, Bruce Lee had a one-inch punch that he could knock people back three feet. Wow! Right, and that was one point of contention was, well, how could how could Ali knock him out in which which was about six inches from uh, Ali's punch to Sonny's head? Mm -hmm. That was they were saying like, well, that's impossible, right? But they they had yet to see a Bruce Lee, yeah. right? So uh, mm. a Bruce Lee one-inch punch. So <clears throat> what happened was that Ali 
when he saw the jab coming towards his head, he would he 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 would when you usually do that, a, a traditional boxer uh, from let's say uh, uh, Sonny's era would co- lean back, go onto his the ball of his foot and then his heel and then push off from his from the ball of uh, ball of his foot and then throw the overhand right. What Ali basically turning his hip as he throws the overhand right. What Ali did to rev- revolutionize the, that punch, the overhand right, was as he was going back in the air, he turned his hips to the left already. Mm-hmm. So he didn't have to go back to his heel. So when he came down, he just landed on his on the ball of his foot and then threw the overhand right immediately as Sonny's hand started to hyper extend back to below his chin and making that his overhand right Ali's overhand right the fastest overhand right in history because mm. he had to, he didn't have to go back to his heel and then rotate his hips and throw the overhand right if you study Ali's overhand right you'll see how how he was able to make his his punch maybe two half a second faster than anybody in history mm. and that's why Sonny could not see the punch he said he was Sonny at the end of the fight said I was surprised by that punch yeah because no one ever throw and, and up until that time nobody ever ventured to that to Sonny's left <laughs> because of the danger of being hit by his jab mm-hmm. you know and if even if they did it was for a short time yeah yeah so people i mean we could look back now we could we could look back and look at that fight we're, we're not as naive as we were as a as a as a people mm-hmm. and we're more sophisticated now we know ali's the greatest mm-hmm. ever now we can look back at that fight and see how how ali was able to beat sunny yeah yeah. Another interesting part of the book was talking about how they were close friends. Yeah, Sonny. I mean, if you look at the the pre pre fight propaganda, mm-hmm. uh, where Sonny would run into uh, Ali's boxing camp and you know, hey, what are you doing? You know, and Ali would run into his camp. You'll see they're laughing. Yeah. You'll see their trainers laughing and managers laughing. So mm-hmm. yeah, they were best friends. I mean, uh, to the to uh, Geraldine Liston called uh, Ali. Cassius Clay to the day she died. I mean, and he didn't like Cassius Clay, so you know that's how close they were. You yeah, know, he, he yeah. didn't he didn't like that name because he thought that name was a slave name. But yeah, they were they were good friends, and and Ali and Sonny were the first, I think, the first and last uh, competitors to ever have the same agent. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So usually, if if if, if you ha- have been competitors mm-hmm. with another uh, athlete. It's hard to have the same agent yes. because um, th- that basically um, uh, it's hard to get over that. Yeah. A- after decades of being competitors, and that's a testament to their friendship. Uh, I have a uh, agent uh, who's also Ollie's Ollie's agent, who kind of uh, what he does is he builds the brand, helps build the brand after retirement. Mm-hmm. So he helped build, make. Uh, um, Muhammad Ali a global brand after he retired his name is Harlan J. Werner mm-hmm. and uh, he was also jo- uh, 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 Geraldine's agent after Sonny mm-hmm. uh, Sonny died what she what he did was he brought my grandmother Geraldine out at abstract poverty mm-hmm. because there were a lot of people thought she was dead and so they were making movies about Sonny and mm-hmm. making products about using his image mm-hmm. without paying her so he he sought her out and gave her uh, her just due and put her back on the on the world stage, yeah. and so I owe a lot to Harlan Warner and his agency, his sports placement agency. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It sounds like he did that with a lot of other athletes as well. Oh yeah, their families he d- are really looked out for them. Yeah, he he created the uh, the. Uh, I think he's he created that whole market. Mm-hmm. 
uh, that was his his idea. He was uh, originally a card collector. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so yeah, he he kind of created a whole genre of creating a, a bringing uh, the athlete back connected with their fan base after they retire. Yeah, so I, I really, and he's my agent now. He's a family, the Sunny Listener State agent now. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I owe, I owe a lot to him and and his efforts that he's that he's made on behalf of the Listener State. Yeah. So. Great. Well, maybe we can take a little bit of a break and then uh, talk more in a bit. If that sounds good to you. All right, let's do it. Thanks. All right, sure. So I'll be putting on a little bit of music here while we take a break. You are listening to Mutiny Radio FM. This is the weekly review, and we'll be back in just a bit. That's good, man. You're a good, good interviewer. Thanks.
joined here by Linnell Gardner. We're having a great conversation about quite a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. So, well, we were talking also about the performance piece that you did. Yeah. uh, Well, again, I was uh, in, uh, I did five cities in the UK. I did the Scotland National Festival. I did the Belgium National Festival. I did uh, London. Uh, I did Bath. I did Manchester. Uh, and also I did uh, Woolwich, which is uh, where the slave port is a slave port, actually. Oh. Yeah, originally. Um, b- touring in London was very interesting because London, uh, they have a great history of art uh, they, they, and craft, uh, unlike uh, America, where people in America, it's a very young country still, uh, yeah. People don't really understand the craft of art. Mm-hmm. You know, they they pre- they appreciate popular artists. Yeah. And uh, as we were saying earlier, people don't understand that popular artists used to be poor artists. Yeah. You know, they they started they started like everyone else starts with nothing. And uh, but in 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 the UK, I was able to see that you know they have thousand thousand years of history in 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 that the europe and the uk and and uh of course the uk is not that old but but i was able to really be embraced by people that understood the craft yeah um but the thing about london is it's still very racist so i'll give you for instance i was in uh, piccadilly square yeah and it was snowing Mm -hmm. And they have what they call the queue. The queue is a line, yeah. right? And um, there, there's the front of the queue, the middle of the queue, and the back of the queue, right? So when the when the taxis come around, they have to go to the front of the queue, uh-huh. right? Whoever's at the front gets the first cab. But because we had about nine guys, mm-hmm. nine, uh, we were called the Hittite Empire. We were a, a LA-based uh, performance art group. We were the only black performance art group in the country. Uh, so we went to to uh, the London um, Institute of Contemporary Art, mm-hmm. and um, so we're waiting out there, and it's snowing. It's co- it's got to be cold if it's snowing, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, the cabs we notice are stopping in the middle and picking up the white tourists, uh, white Londoners, mm-hmm. and we're like, wait. And the thing about it was, it's not like it was. It was pretty obvious. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So what we would notice was the white tourists, the white Londoners, uh, they would look at us and they'd know, wait, that's the front of the line. Yeah. Can I give you this, giving us this look like, should we or shouldn't we take yeah. it? Yeah. And nine times out of 10, they would take the cab. Yeah. And to me, that was, I would call that white privilege. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because... They could have stopped. See, racism can be stopped mm-hmm. by the power structure. Yeah. Right? So the power was, in that moment, that was white power. Mm-hmm. Okay? So all they would have to do to change mm-hmm. the worldview was to say, no, uh, cab, taxi driver, they were first up there. Yeah. And that cab be that cab driver would have to change his worldview yeah. and go up to the front of the line and yeah. that would change history. Yeah. Right. But it's so, uh, it's so easy. It's so tempting because it's cold. 
Oh, sure. Yeah, but we're cold too. Yep. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're cold and it's snowing and and uh, we're at the front of the line. We started at the end of the line. Now we're at the front of the line. Mm-hmm. And you're at the middle or at the end and you're taking advantage. Yeah. And it's like, okay. So and then we noticed that there were... Um, black women who are we're part of this festival and, and there were black women there in in the queue and the same thing was happening to them they were actually at the front of the line and and we were seeing that these women were not getting picked up yeah so we said okay there's nine brothers all right what we're gonna do is when that cabbie stops and doesn't pick up these black women we're gonna jump into the car mm-hmm. to the cab and we we're gonna tell these this cabbie or these cabbies you better pick take these women or we're gonna beat your ass that's basically how it came to that mm-hmm. uh because we didn't want to see black women suffering yeah. out, out there so we spent half the night doing that right for black women and, and another thing about it was <clears throat> let's say we we would perform and they would call a cab and then the, the cabbie wouldn't pick us up mm. you know i mean i don't know if it was because it was nine black guys but what if it was nine white guys would it be the same Right. So what we would have to do was we would have to have the white uh, artistic director. Yeah. Call the cab, stand outside, have the cab stop for her. Yeah. And then jump into the car. Yep. And it's like, oh, at that time, up until that point, I was like, oh, this is I'm on vacation. Mm hmm. This is a great city. Everything's wonderful. Then I realized, oh, this is where it all started. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> slavery before the, the portuguese had the slaves and then the spaniards then the english okay now i get it mm-hmm. okay this is this is still here mm-hmm. so <clears throat> that fueled our performance even more yeah uh because we were known for uh our group the hittite empire we were known for being uh c- controversial yeah we were the only artists in the in the country that were saying, uh, I don't know if you remember, maybe you're too young, the Central Park rape, rape case. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, we were the only artists in the country saying that there's no evidence. Right, right. right? And we did a, a, a performance piece about the Central Park rape case mm-hmm. where we showed uh, that basically we, basically the, when the audience first came, in, came into the theater, they saw a black kid in a cell mm-hmm. on stage. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I played the kids, and he was on death row, and I played the kids' higher self. Yeah, and it, and in the cell, he was he was struggling with his his higher self, the good and evil within himself. That struggle. Okay, now then we showed the uh, ritualistic rape, Mm -hmm. right? So there, so the white woman comes running out, and then we do a ritualistic rape, just like kind of what happened in in what they say happened yeah. in the Central Park rape case. Now, this is when I realized how powerful racism was. Mm-hmm. Um, not one once the play it was a three hour play, yeah, and the play was the the woman's delusion, mm. right, and not one paper nationally not one trade asked why the black kid was in the cell. Mm. So that day, that, that performance made me realize, Oh, we're, we're, we're guilty. Mm. We're, uh, we're presumed guilty Mm -hmm. no matter what. Mm -hmm. Right. So, uh, it was funny. Um, 
we sold out the Lincoln Center, right? Mm-hmm. Usually when you do a, usually when you start a show, yeah, it takes about three to four weeks to build an audience. Yeah, right. Now white women were so pissed at us about this play, we that we were sold out in the Lincoln Center before we even got there. Huh. It's like three thousand seat theater. Wow. Right. Now they the, the what happened was the the rumor was that wh- white women went there so they could yell at us. They bought their tickets so they could yell at us. Because they, their whole thing was, why was the woman in the play so weak? Why was the white woman so weak? Well, she was in a, she was in a coma, mm-hmm. right? The, the play was her delusion, mm-hmm. right? And if you, if you uh, remember the, the article, uh, they, they displayed, they had a, 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 a throughout, throughout all, most of the, the editorials and magazine articles, they had a, the, it was called a wilding incident because black kids, when they would have fun and party, they would call it wilding, right? They just happened to be ha- hanging out in the park mm-hmm. that night. Now, the woman was running through the park in the middle of the night. Who runs through Central Park in the middle of the night, right? And in a jogging suit, and they found out that her boyfriend, Seaman, was on her jogging suit, mm-hmm. right? So they pick up these boys, they take them in, mm-hmm. no lawyer, had them up all night, mm-hmm. and they signed, okay, I did it, right? Uh, Ten years later, they're released. Yeah. No evidence. Yeah. Right? So that's racist propaganda for you. So they had depicted that scene throughout the media yeah a, a, a full moon and it was dark a full moon and then you could see the trees like and then it called and then it had wilding in central park like wolves like animals you see yeah so that propaganda mm-hmm. affects people's worldview yeah and then they go in and and they and they they, they want a fair trial right but the media is always they've, they've blown it out of proportion yeah. and so now we're beast again right Right. Ten years later, they're free. No evidence. So, you know, I when we did the play, uh, it was called uh, uh, I can't remember. uh, I forgot the name of the play offhand. But when we did the play, um, I realized that what I realized was that racism is like a a seed that was planted Mm -hmm. a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And it's gone. It's it's grown into this tremendous tree. Yeah. And its roots are extremely deep into the ground, and now it's bearing fruit, mm-hmm. and people are now eating from that fruit. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. The only way to end racism is to uproot the tree. Mm-hmm. Now, how we do that, I don't know, but that's when I realized that you, you can't just change people's minds. Yeah. About racism, yeah. you can't make people go, "No, you shouldn't think that way." Yeah. It's deeper than that. Yeah, and it's also the behavior. So in a lot of it's like I think subconscious. Yeah, it's, it's become the, the the subconscious that it's become uh, their consciousness. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I think the only way, at least for me, is t- everyone has to make their own, have their own realization. I mean, you can't be part of the problem. You know, mm-hmm. like I try not to be part of the problem. Like when a cop stops me, I go. I don't have any attitude. I mean, I, I don't. I, I can have attitude. Well, it shouldn't even. I mean, that's, yeah. It should, shouldn't matter if you shouldn't matter. Yeah. But but his expectations. Like I was, I used to live in uh, Saratoga, and there's like a six percent. There's I think six percent of the residents there are of color. And but I'd get stopped mm-hmm. like four or five times a week, <laughs> and I said, "Listen, guys, there's only 
six percent of population yeah. that are that are of color here. Yeah. Don't you think you should take the time to get to know who those people are? Mm-hmm. It's not like there's a lot of us. It's not like it's going to take a lot of your time away. You get to know who's in your neighborhood. Yeah, that six percent does. I mean, even though we're the minority uh, and we're not the majority in numbers, we still are. We still have rights. Yeah. We still should be respected. We still should. Uh, you, sh- you, you should sh- still abide by the laws yeah. of the land. We you, and the Constitution. Yeah. You know, I shouldn't be stopped four or five times a week mm-hmm. because I'm going. I'm I'm driving through a mil- millionaire's row. Right. Right. Where I live. <laughs> you know. <sighs> And it's almost like a game because, you know, they, they start, they st- like, I used to live in East Palo Alto, and every time we tried to cross the bridge over the 101, yeah. the cops would stop us and say, where you guys think you're going? Uh, right? So it became a mental, it became a mental construct yeah. that, okay, we don't even think about crossing the bridge anymore. Mm. The next generation doesn't go past the boundaries of the city mm-hmm. because it's not, even, it's not even an afterthought. Because the other generation ahead of us taught us, oh, you can't go that way. Yeah, you can only go halfway, and and or you're gonna get they're gonna mess with you, and then the next generation just doesn't go. Yeah, and then that affects their worldview on well, if I can't go across the bridge, I guess that my life is limited as a black person. So I teach kids sometimes. I, I have a uh, uh, a uh, a business called Theater as Prevention. Mm. And I try to use theater as a tool uh, to help kids start dialogue, yeah. to talk yeah. about their issues. And uh, <clears throat> that's what kind of how I survived through theater. Um, and it's not a theor- it's not ther- therapy. It's not a theater therapy. I teach craft mm-hmm. and the craft itself. It, it opens it opens kids up uh, the craft of theater. Um, and so <clears throat> what I do is I go in and I depending on a demographic. I say, what do you guys need? And I, through that demographic, I say, okay, you guys need to do this. Okay, what we'll do is we'll try to actualize that need throughout through the workshop or through a play, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, lost my train of thought. But so, um, what I try to do is I try to get, I try to get. Oh, I know, I, I know what I was going to say. Um, so I, I, I taught these kids who have uh, parents that are incarcerated. Mm-hmm. And one day, and we sometimes we go out to this cabin and uh, uh, this uh, camp. We go to this camp, and uh, <clears throat> one day I was I was a camp counselor, staff counselor, and I heard these kids talking on the porch. And this kid goes, "I want to go to Disneyland one day." Mm-hmm. And a kid, other kid goes, "No, don't think about that." He's like, "I'm not going." What? I'm thinking, what the hell? Yeah. And they go, the kid goes, "Don't think it. Don't hope." Wow. Uh. I said, whoa, whoa, these kids are so afraid of failure mm. that they can't even hope to do anything. They can't hope to succeed because if they fail, failing is more crushing. Mm. It's too crushing to, 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 to have your hopes, you know, to, to, to lose hope. Mm-hmm. And that's that whole bridge mentality, crossing the bridge, yeah. you know, East Palo Alto to go to, to, go to White Palo Alto. Mm. You know what I'm saying? It, it crushed me. It's like, wow, look what we're doing to our children. Yeah. We're, and, and we wonder why they can't succeed. You know, they don't even want to succeed. They don't want to hope. Mm. They don't even want to hope 
because they've had so much failure and they've been let down so many times in their lives. Yeah. They have no trust. They don't trust themselves. They don't trust the world. They don't trust anybody, you know? Yeah. So I try to work with kids so that they can hope again. Yeah. You know, they can believe in themselves again. And um, what I do with my process is I don't try to change the kid. If they, I, I got a kid that's, that stomps his feet mm-hmm. all the time. I'm going to get that kid to be a character, create a character where his character stomps his feet. Mm-hmm. So this kid can have the, the faith that you don't have to change yeah. to make it in the world. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Or I'll get a kid that he's the, everybody follows his lead. Mm-hmm. Even if it's negative, they follow his lead. Mm-hmm. So what I do is I don't try to change the, the group leader. I say, listen, I try to befriend him. Mm-hmm. I say, listen, man. You know you you have you know you got a lot of influence on these kids, right? He goes, yeah, I got it. I got a lot of influence. I go, wouldn't you be wouldn't it be good if you could do if you do you could lead them in a positive direction instead of a negative direction? Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So I make a deal. We make a deal, and I influence him because I can't change him. I can't push him out mm-hmm. and say, no, you follow me. I'm your teacher. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I say, no, no, no. Let me bond with the leader mm-hmm. because he has the greatest influence. Right. And once I get him on my side, we can move forward. Yeah. Right. So I don't try to change anyone. Mm-hmm. You know, I try to take, and that's what uh, my teacher taught me in, in in junior high, Mrs. Hinckley at St. Lawrence Academy. Mm-hmm. White white lady. She goes, I want to. You're a good speaker. I think you should do an elocution uh, contest, mm-hmm. and I'm gonna have you do this play. Mm-hmm. And it's it's I Have a Dream by Martin Luther King. And I said I didn't even know who he was. Until she told me, hmm. you know what I'm saying? So, um, and that woman was able to spark my interest in, in, in the arts. Mm-hmm. And she was white, but she believed in me, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I don't think we believe enough in, these, in the kids. Yeah. We, we don't believe enough in them. And so they don't believe in themselves. Yeah. You know, and it goes back to what we were talking about before with a lot of the um, internalizing of the the propaganda that we see. Right, and it's so difficult not to take on like a lot of the negative messages, especially if you're young. When you're young, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just like easy to feel powerless where you don't have a voice. Yes, and I think it's easy to forget. Like once you're an adult, you have a little bit more autonomy and a little bit more freedom to to do or like at least more knowledge of how things work and as a as a child there's less uh places that you can go and i think as far as decisions go right fewer decisions you can make um for your own life yeah and that's why i think the, the the inner city uh needs 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 help because there's not a lot of choices and when i when we left the inner city i realized how many choices i have oh i can play baseball golf i can sail <laughs> i can do i can there's so many other choices that i didn't have in the inner city mm-hmm. that uh that i see uh is still the problem mm-hmm. is these kids don't have enough choices they see only two ways to succeed you know mm-hmm. uh and unfortunately that's 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 a dead end street. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Rather than seeing, oh, you can be a doctor or a lawyer, but we had those those uh, in the in the 60s, we had those people in our communities. Mm-hmm. You know, those positive positive influences, and and um, we just didn't have enough of the revenue yes. to sustain everything. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, so I, I, uh, I go back to. 
to the UK. Um, yeah, it was a, it was a great experience for me. Uh, originally, the play was called Black Son, No Father, mm -hmm. but I wanted I wanted I changed the name because I wanted it to be a more of a universal mm -hmm. uh, appeal because uh, everybody has a father, you know. Even if even if you're a girl, your daddy's little girl. So I, I performed it in juvenile halls where it was all all girls uh, and all boy juvenile halls. I performed it in prisons, mm -hmm. and, and 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 it's interesting because um, in prison. Um, if if guys are doing a lot of time they think that their children there's this chasm that's created between their children and themselves yeah. because of the time factor yeah, yeah you know i've been in i'm gonna be here for 20 years yeah you know or 10 years or five years and they feel like uh at least the, the guys that i perform for they felt like oh my kid you know he's he don't care because I'm, I'm i'm i can't be in his life right mm. And so when I was done, in, in my play, I say uh, the, the bond between father and son is something that can never be broken. You can wait for it your whole life. So to me, this, the, the bond between father and son is spiritual. Because even when my dad, even the fact that I wasn't around my dad a lot, when he died, I felt like a piece of me just tore off my soul, you know. So that's when I realized, oh, it's spiritual. It's a spiritual connection. And so when I, when I did my play in, in prison, uh, the guys connected that and they said they got up when the play was over they got up and made phone calls to their children mm. on the pay phones in the prisons mm -hmm. <laughs> like the whole group got up and made mm -hmm. phone calls man it was like it was amazing mm. and because they thought that this there's a disconnect some yeah. kind of disconnect because of the time that, yeah. that, that they spent um, but uh, yeah that was a that was when I realized how important that play was yeah you know to to, to break that to break that and and also a lot of the the guys opened up to me again the mm -hmm. play was designed to create a, a natural Q&A at the end mm -hmm. and to hear their stories to hear that oh <clears throat> my mom was so poor that she gave me a hit of crack mm -hmm. for my birthday mm -hmm. when I was 13 mm -hmm. and you wonder okay if I get if that happened to me would I also end up in jail mm-hmm because my psych psychologically I would be damaged sure you know what I'm saying and so we don't want to get to know those stories you know because it's easier to because of how we how the society is you know structured it's easier to say yeah they, they deserve to be there they they don't pull themselves up oh. by their own bootstraps you know and it's like some people don't even have boots to yeah pull up you yeah. know I mean, it's just all all it's victim blaming yeah it's class it's, it's a cast it's a, we have a, a class system and we have a cat a raced a race caste system yeah and and until we cross those boundaries nothing will change yeah and uh i think as artists uh it's our it's important for for artists to to be the, the change we want to see yeah uh to speak on behalf of society's ills yeah you know what i'm saying and I'm glad that you mentioned, I mean, working with folks who are incarcerated, because I do feel like that's part of we need to, like, abolish. Because, I mean, the idea that folks are to go there, the idea is to rehabilitate, yet prisons don't serve that purpose. Yeah, they, they used they, they used to do that. But, you mean, you could get your education in prison. You used to be able to, like, uh, get a get a trade. <laughs> I mean, uh, they had re rehab. Um I mean, I've talked. I've talked to the FBI. I've talked to police. They feel that their lives are in danger, more danger than 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 uh, in, in in the past, 
because what we're saying to people that we're locking up is we don't give a sh we don't give a shit about you. We we don't care if you rehabilitate. You know, we uh, you, you three strikes you're out, right? And um, so what that makes a, a person do when they rob a bank is say, okay, this is. I got nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a arm I'm a arm up. I'm a, I'm a put my armor on and I'm gonna rob this bank. And everybody's gonna and it's gonna be. I'm gonna go if I have if I go out I go out because I know if I go in I'm not getting out, mm -hmm. right? So that makes it more risky for police, more risky for FBI because you have somebody with that mentality robbing a bank, going I'm not gonna get caught because I'm not because you're not gonna let me out, mm -hmm. right? It's a silly policy and also the 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 crime rate was going down mm -hmm. when they enacted that policy mm -hmm. three strikes policy you know uh it, it, it was politicized yeah and unfortunately we as voters we get emotional you know and 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 they org and the politicians they know how to organize hate they know how to organize fear yeah you know yeah. and we buy into it we buy into it every single time and uh yeah so so you know uh now there's overcrowding now you have nonviolent criminals that are, that are getting killed by violent criminals because they if you think about it uh, uh, they didn't even they didn't even really think about what they were doing because a felony is a felony right so if you steal a slice of pizza it's a felony right so they go well so everybody's going in based on felon a felony mm -hmm. And you're sitting next to somebody that, you know, is is dangerous. Yeah. And it's like these politicians put all these people's lives in danger. Yeah. And I think the politicians are the ones who are, who are dangerous a lot of the time. Yeah. Because I'm more afraid of them. They just want to be reelected. Yeah. At, at, at all costs. And it's a damn shame. Yeah. So anyway, going back to the UK. So I had a I had a great time in the UK. Manchester uh, was great. You have a, the college there, so there was a lot of young energy. Uh, uh, they they um, they again they appreciate the craft. I remember they had a uh, I was in Glasgow, mm -hmm. and they had a TV actor mm -hmm. perform at a arts festival, and they booed him. I was like, damn. Wow. Yeah, they booted. Well-known uh, TV actor. I, I don't recall his name, but it was like, that's the kind of appreciation they have for yeah. craft. You know, it's like they don't want any commercial artists. And and it's like, wait, maybe he started out as a craft artist. He became popular and commercial. I mean, so so it was kind of, they, they looked, it was funny how they, they looked down on commercialism. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, but, Again, um, there, as an audience, it's interesting because they're not, they don't really emote the yeah. Brits. They don't emote, you don't feel their, yes. you know, as a, as a performer, yeah. like in America, you feel our emotion, you feel people's vibe, oh, you know, yeah. when they're, when, when the, from the audience in America, but in, 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 uh, in England, it's almost everything's intellectual, everything's in their head. Mm -hmm. So you don't really I'm like performing going, do you guys feel me? Is anybody out there? You know, mm -hmm. but you'll see them squirming like, you know, like, cause they're, they, they're, they intellectualize are in their head. Uh, and, um, then, but then you're affecting them on an emotional level. Yes. Which they're unconscious. They're, they're start to become conscious of. Yeah. Uh, uh, which is, was, was really interesting. And that's, I mean, that's, that's the, 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 but then you have the Caribbeans who are more emotional, mm -hmm. the Caribbeans, uh, the working class. Uh, so it, it's it's interesting because you have that riff. You have a riff between the working class, the Caribbeans, 
and uh, you know the upper class mm-hmm. that's going on there. You know, it's not about pretty much black white there, like in America. You know, uh, their race issue is a little, a little bit more layered mm-hmm. uh, with the working class and the Caribbeans fighting for you know whatever crumbs the upper class gives them. You know, in a way. But uh, yeah, and, and another thing is the jet lag was kind of hard. It's hard to perform with jet lag. Oh yep. yeah, yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. So that was a strain, and the the thing was, they're 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 the the the, the a lot of the like in Belgium, the 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 beer is four hundred. They've been brewing it for four hundred years, so the potency is so like you have a you have a, a glass of beer and it's it you got to be careful, you know, because it's like it's the the alcohol content is really high so so uh, you you really have to mix because they love their pubs there oh yeah scotland you know they uh, uk they love their pubs so yeah. everybody wants to go to the pub yeah. yeah and so you have you have to you have to really gauge you know okay i got to perform tomorrow i have i have all my energy but then you have to get used to the each culture that you're mm-hmm. you're dealing with yeah british culture is different than caribbean culture different mm-hmm. than working class culture then you got to go to scotland and deal with their their culture and the way they drink and this like you're always adjusting every three days i was in a different city mm-hmm. you know so it was kind of interesting because i was doing what i was i was doing what i love to do i was living my art i was living yeah. my passion yeah then i was like living out of my suitcase for three days and i was like oh my god what surprised me was here i am living my dream and it started to feel like work. Mm-hmm. That's was really an eye opener for me. Yeah. And I said, well, wait a second. Let me think about this now. I said, well, you know what? What I learned from that is if I didn't have a passion for it, mm-hmm. I would have quit. Yeah. If it was just about money, I would have quit. Yeah. You know, because it was too hard. It was physically, mentally too, uh, too hard mm-hmm. to, to, to be in five cities and tour uh, with uh, for five weeks, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying, and it really taught me about a lot about what was important, which is you know as long as I have a little bit of passion for what I'm doing, uh, everything else is 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 I could deal with everything else. Yeah, right. And it taught me a lot about what was important about being an artist. You mm-hmm. know, uh, passion is so important. So when I tell young people, uh, you know, if you're not if you're not uh, into this don't waste your time you know yeah. because it's a hard it's a it, it, it's rewarding it's very noble i think being a being an artist and in in uh trying to change the world is very noble uh but uh without a passion for it you, you if you're just doing it for money and fame it's empty well and it just comes and goes money comes and goes yeah you know fame comes and goes mm-hmm. and as an artist because i was doing three for four years almost four years in la i wasn't making a dime mm-hmm. I said, why am I not, why am I still doing this? I said, oh, because I've been doing this since I was five years old. Yeah. You know, yeah. my dad was an artist. He was a musician, a painter, a mathematician, mm. genius. But he just didn't have the opportunity mm-hmm. uh, because of uh, racism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he had to, m- to sell drugs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I learned a lot about the importance of being an artist and artist community and artist support, supporting other artists. Uh, and sometimes you can't, sometimes you can't, you try to articulate being an artist to, uh, a layman and they don't get it. Yeah. And then you get discouraged because, you yeah. know, 
is you're not appreciated rather than oh, sure so i tell i tell young artists i said you know you need to be around other artists yeah because they understand what you they understand your lingo they understand what you're going through they understand your passion yes don't waste your energy on somebody that doesn't understand it's going to say hey stop doing that get a real job you yeah. know what i'm saying yeah what the, what would this world be without artists you know I wouldn't want to live in that world. Yeah, well, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, we, I mean, this is how powerful artists are when they when they invade a country, when another country invades another country. What do they do? They kill the artist. Mm-hmm. They kill the. They, they burn the books. Mm-hmm. They uh, because they want to control the the the, the, the worldview. Yeah. They 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 don't want anybody that's going to provoke thought. Mm-hmm. So the power of artists is they provoke thought. Yeah. And that's just like the the press. They should be able. To, they should be able to provoke thought. You know, we should have a free press so so people can question. Yes. Like what? Well, yeah, we should have the right to question. Don't don't censor anything. Yeah. What kind of country is this that censors? You know. Oh yeah. You know. So. So anyway, um, yeah. So I enjoyed I enjoyed the UK, but again. Uh, I, 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 my, my dream is to get a, a national tour going Yeah, and, uh, uh, you know, get this story told because it's an American story. Yeah. You know, it's a definitely American story and it's a story that can be shared because, you know, I talk about leave it to beaver, you know, I talk about wonder bread. I talk about father knows best. That is those things I grew up on. Uh, that is very American. It's not a black thing. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, uh, the 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 children crying out is not a black thing. It's a it's a global issue. Yeah, you know I think I think one in three kids grew up in a single parent household. Mm-hmm. You know globally, that's a that's that's a, that means we need more community support. Absolutely. You know you can't say well you know you're a single mom or single parent. You know why are your kids so messed up? No. Why are you helping out? Yeah, it's society that's messed up. Yeah, it's like why is why isn't that kid that kid's an American citizen? Mm-hmm. Why aren't we helping each other as Americans? Yeah, you know what I'm saying. You know why and and why are we relying so much on politicians to make a change? You know they're only part of the uh, they're only part of it. You know yeah. what I'm saying. So we have to become more of a, a community uh, that can uh, you know support one another when when they had the la riots yeah the the community couldn't couldn't talk they were polarized mm-hmm. the city was polarized yeah. the only the only one that could express uh the needs of the community in this in the city of la were the artists mm-hmm. the artists in la healed la mm-hmm. okay because we could communicate what everybody was trying to say yeah so that's how important artists are to society you know um it was the artists coming together, different races, creeds, colors, mm-hmm. nationalities, uh, who came together to show that we can all get along. Right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I was lucky enough to be there to 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 be part of that. You know, uh, that experience after the LA riots and during the LA riots. Yeah. So. Yeah. <sighs> <sighs> so much. Yeah, it's a lot so to talk much. about. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I'm I'm uh, come a long way. I'm 53 years old and uh, still doing my art. And it's and it and, and the thing is, there's there's lean years and there's not so lean years. And yeah. There's years when you're successful and years where you're not so su- successful, and, and there's years when you got to get a, a real job. And and I tell people it's like yeah, real job. Yeah. Vacation marks. Yeah. <laughs> but I tell people it's like because uh, there's an artist that I, I think she's she's in the UK and she's. Uh, 
she kind of she gets down on herself when she gets a real job because she has to pay the bills sometimes you know yeah, yeah. and uh i said you know what life is art art is life mm-hmm. you know some I, I i went from selling out we went from selling out the lincoln center uh broadway to uh, me working at a grocery store as a bagger mm-hmm. and i said what is this why am i here <laughs> this i mean it, talk yeah. about a shock to my ego sure but what i learned as a bagger yeah changed my life as an artist oh yeah you see because that was a, f- a real experience that was a living experience mm-hmm. uh communicating to people every different people every day yeah it affected had an effect on my art mm-hmm. and it had effect on my form my way i express myself as an artist and what i was going to write about or talk about in the future yeah so i think without life there's no thing there's nothing without experiencing life there's nothing to give yeah so i don't i don't judge i don't judge the the you know okay art artist means this yeah you know or artist to be an artist means i need to do that mm-hmm. no art life is art you know you know just just how we how i articulate art how i how i, I articulate life is through art mm-hmm. through 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 creating plays or writing books yeah that's that's i'm articulating i don't define what art is because yeah i've had to i went from uh, BBC, the BBC uh, wanting to go into San Quentin and interview my father to the BBC uh, cleaning and cleaning house and losing the producer. Mm. So I said, well, I still need to tell my story. Yeah, yeah. So what do I do now? So I became a playwright. Right. I wasn't a playwright before. Yeah, we tell our own stories. So I, so I, I say, I'm going to tell a story. I'm going to be a playwright and see if mm. that works. And then I, I got picked up. The play got picked up. And then when it came to Sonny Liston, I wanted to, uh, uh, my grandmother was supposed to do a movie with, uh, he was finally going to be able to do a movie with uh, Paramount Pictures, mm-hmm. where she was finally going to write the story. Yeah, yes. Right? And then there was a big fight over distribution, and a lot of things uh, didn't work out. And somehow she signed over a lot of stuff she shouldn't have, and Paramount Pictures now owns the, the, the script that's never been uh, produced yet, mm-hmm. uh, and I hope to I hope to one day uh, get that script. Yeah, because it, it's probably like un, no other script has ever been written about Sunday because she helped write the script. Yes, right. Yes. But you know her name's not on it. Somehow <sighs> she didn't get a writer's credit. It was like, what's the point? That's the whole point. Yeah, you're not gonna give her a writer's credit. So uh, it's been sitting there. I've talked to the president, uh, Brad Gray, about it, and so it's just sitting there. So. So, so I, once I realized that wasn't going to be done after she died, I said, how am I going to tell her story? Mm-hmm. I became a novelist. Yeah. And I made, I, I wrote uh, Beast Deconstruction of Charles Sonny Liston, and it's on Amazon. And uh, so, I, again, I can't define myself as an artist. You just have to live life, and life kind of dictates the form out of necessity yes you know out of necessity i became these an art an artist uh, out of my need to say something my dad my mom my mom would show up she was a heroin addict you know she would show up and i'd be waiting for my mom had all my homework for her all prepared and she would show up at the house my great aunt raised me and she would show up at the house and I wouldn't show anybody my, my homework, yeah. my, all the good grades I got. I would save it for my mother. And then when she'd come over, she'd, do- she'd be high on heroin and she'd doze off. Mm. And, and so I took all that energy. And instead of 
destroying myself with it yeah. I, I expressed myself through art and I think that's probably where my dad came in because he was an artist so maybe I had that trait you know watching him uh, use art in his life uh so I used art as a form of expression, self-expression. Yeah. And then when my, I'd go over my dad's and he'd be running his business, multi-million dollar business, uh, he didn't have time. I'd sit across the, 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 the end table mm-hmm. and he'd have 11 women living in the house and, um, you know, he'd be counting his money and, uh, you know, weighing his drugs and it was like, dad, I'm, are you, we going to do something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But he had this empire and so, I said, "What well, I do all this energy?" So I created, I created art from that, yeah. you know, and out of all that frustration, you know, I was lucky enough to to be around my dad, watch my dad when he did do his art, play his music yeah. or paint. Yeah, uh, I was able to see, oh, that's a vehicle. Maybe that's what. I, I, so look, that's what he taught me. Yeah, and indirectly, he taught me how to be an artist. You know, by watching him uh, dabble in it. I said, "Oh, that's a vehicle for a tool." where I don't have to kill myself or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, go through. I mean, I did have my issues with drugs and alcohol, but I always had that other choice. Mm-hmm. You know, I had that other choice of expression that my dad, I saw through my dad, you yeah. know, so. So anyway. Wow. <laughs> wow, it's been really great talking with uh, you. Great. You're a good, great interview. Thank oh, you. Uh, yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to uh, promote or share with the listeners? Uh, just, uh, yeah, just, uh, oh, I have a blog. It's linnellgardner.com. That's L-Y-N-E-L Gardner, G-A-R-D-N-E-R.com. And that's uh, my Sunny Liston blog, linnellgardner.com. You can go check out that, leave some comments. Uh, again, you can find... Uh, uh, beast the deconstruction of sonny charles liston on amazon and i kept it really cheap it's like i think it's like nine ten dollars and also you can find my other play stories that I never told my father also on amazon awesome. thank you for having me cool. thanks for being here. yeah great uh, thanks everyone for listening uh this has been the weekly review uh mutinyradio.fm you can check us out uh we have shows here every day of the week coming up next is women's magazine with global val followed by the common thread collective so stay tuned and we'll be back again next week have a great week everybody great man that was a great interview